The passage that we're gonna be in today is Revelation 19. So I'm reading out of Revelation 19. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And once more they cried out, hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, praise our God, all you servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant and you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of, the God, of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Bree, for reading the scriptures. It is wonderful to be with you this morning. I had a wonderful time with uh, your staff. Uh, what a fantastic group of people. So it's really my honor to be here with you this morning. And I was told that there are a lot of college students that attend the church. So I want to give a shout out to the college students and a special shout out to any uh, first year freshmen that we have in our midst. 
Now, the reason for that is because uh, I was 19 years old. I was a student, freshman student at USC when I first came to faith in Jesus Christ. And it's, it's weird, but at 19 years old, I was basically a bitter, hardened atheist. And that's when I first met Jesus. And the other weird thing is that that is 50 years ago. So today I'm 69. So this is 50 years ago. And I don't want to say the words half century, but I just did. <laughs> that's a half century. Now, when I came to Christ, when I came to Christ, my family was not so happy. I did not come from a Christian home. When I came to Christ, I went and I told my mom, and I said, I found Jesus. And her immediate response was, this is the greatest disappointment of my life. And then I went to my dad, and I said, hey, I've become a Christian. And he said, you're insane, and I'm going to send you to a counselor to fix you. And my family said, this is a fad. This is a phase. This is going to wear off. And here I am 50 years later, a half century, <laughs> and I'm still 100% committed to Jesus. And so uh, because I'm mostly ancient and because you are mostly young people here, though I did see some gray hairs, I have to say, and I was comforted by that. I thought I would share a bit of my own life experience with you. And because you're studying the book of Revelation, I'd like to look at some of the ways that the book of Revelation is designed to build our faith for a lifetime in following Jesus. Now, our text is Revelation 19. I was assigned this text. Evan says, you're preaching on Revelation 19. And I'm like, what? <laughs> And so I'm like, book of Revelation, okay, that's really intense, you know. And so and then I, I remembered, oh, Revelation 19, awesome. <laughs> I mean, you can't get a better passage than Revelation 19. So here's the first thing I want to share with you about the design of the book of Revelation. And it's something that you already know because you've been studying Revelation. Revelation is designed to give us an overwhelming vision of the glory of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that's, that's the first lesson. That's the, really the biggest lesson of the book of Revelation. And it's the biggest lesson in a lifetime of faith and following Jesus Christ. You probably noticed in the reading that just happened, Revelation 19 gives us two dramatically different images of Jesus. Did you catch that in the text? We're reading along, we're going through the scriptures, and we're introduced to the Lamb of God. Let's go back and let me just, let me see if I can find this and just, just kind of review this. We get to verse 6, it says, I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. Hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. So there's the first image in Revelation 19. It's an image of Jesus as the lamb of God. Okay, we get that image repeated again in, in this text. But then everything changes. In verse 11, 
Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it was called Faithful and True. In righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And you go, oh my gosh. <laughs> that is an awesome vision of Jesus. But you know, I, I saw the Lamb of God, and I thought, what an awesome image of Jesus. And now, the next paragraph I see Jesus as the rider on the white horse who's come as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I think, what an awesome, incredible image of Jesus Christ, my Lord. Well, this is something that we've seen in the book of Revelation from the beginning. The strategy of the book of Revelation is basically to flood us with images of the glory of Jesus Christ. This happens from the very beginning. If you're to, to just to wind back the tape in the book of Revelation and, and think through it with me, we don't have to read all these verses because you've been studying it, but if we're to go back to chapter 1 of Revelation, and remember when John is on the island of Patmos and he has this vision of Jesus, this overwhelming vision of Jesus in Revelation 1, Verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. And you can remember, that vision just goes on and on of the glory of Jesus. You get down to verse 17 and 18. John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death in Hades. And I go, wow, that's another amazing vision. It's an image of Jesus. Now, this image of Jesus in chapter 1 is an image of Jesus, the risen Lord. I'm the one, I was dead, but now I'm alive. So it's actually a vision that theologically is telling us who our Lord and Savior is, it's Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, who has conquered death. Now, if I'm just to keep going forward through the book of Revelation, we're going to come to chapter 5. And in chapter 5, you know this, you guys have studied this, we see the Lamb of God. And in verse Four, I begin to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So now I have a whole other vision of Jesus. And you know, this is the lamb. This is the lamb that shows up in Revelation chapter 19. This is Jesus in his death. This is Jesus in his sacrificial love, his life poured out for us in his act of redeeming sacrifice. Wow. It's a flood of images showing me the true reality of Jesus Christ, my Lord. Now, if I'm to keep going through the book of Revelation, I'll just get image after image. I'm not going to read the passage, but in chapter 12, you might remember there's this vision of a woman clothed with the sun, and she gives birth to a male child who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. It's an image of Jesus. Amazing. Beautiful. 
This is exactly what we were told in Revelation chapter 1, and that is that the book of Revelation is above all the revelation of Jesus Christ. Its primary purpose is not to reveal the future, but to strengthen our faith in the present by showing us a vision of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The church is struggling. John is on Patmos. There's dark clouds on the horizon. Persecution is coming. And what does God do? God says, let me show you your Savior. Let me show you the true reality of who it is that you believe in and who you follow. This is the design of the book of Revelation. And I wonder if you can see in these images, think carefully about this, I wonder if you can see an outline of the central themes of our Christian faith. Can you see the themes of the Christian faith? The doctrines of the Christian faith? Let's, let's put them in order from the Gospels. There's the incarnation of Jesus. That's the woman clothed with the sun and she gives birth to a male child. Do you know what that is? That's Jesus, God in human flesh. That's God stepping into our world in the form of a man. This unbelievable Christian truth. It's an overwhelming truth. You could spend a lifetime just thinking about that truth. And then if now I'm to go in, in order of the Gospels, I have a life lived in an earthly body that leads to death on a cross. That's the Lamb of God, slain for the sins of the world. And then if I'm just to, to go on through the story of Christ, I come to the resurrection of Jesus where he defeats death and he's raised up as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Can you see in these images an outline of the essentials of the Christian faith. By design, the book of Revelation is designed to show us these truths of Jesus. Why? In order to sustain our faith while we live in a broken world. These images show us the profound beauty and power of Jesus our Lord. Now the book of Revelation never shies away from showing us the brokenness and the brutality of our world. You know that too, you've been studying Revelation. I mean, it's gory, right? And in the book of Revelation, we see the brokenness and the brutality of the world that we live in. But for every image of brokenness and evil, we are given an even greater image of Jesus Christ. Now that's exactly what brought me to faith in Jesus. It was a vision of the beauty and the power of Jesus that invaded my own broken life and my own broken world. This week, because I've been reading the book of Revelation because I was told to preach on Revelation, <laughs> I've been scrolling backward in my mind. I've been scrolling backward through images of the brokenness and the brutality of our world in my own memory. And I found that I didn't have to scroll back very far. I mean, I could go to yesterday's newspaper. I find images of brokenness and brutality in the war in Ukraine. 
when we see that and we just shudder, like, what, what the heck is going on? I can scroll back through a half century and more of images of brokenness and brutality, images of war. And I'm not, I'm not talking about history books, I'm talking about images in my own life. Images that I remember, war after war after war. After a while, you almost get sort of calloused to these pictures. There's lots of images of violence in war, but there's other kinds of images as well. In my mind, I have images of racial injustice. I don't know about you, but for me, it's, it's almost impossible for me to erase from my mind the image of George Floyd with the officer kneeling on his neck. It's a horrifying image of brokenness and brutality in our world. And I can go back and run the tape back for 50 to 60 years of images of racial injustice in our own church. But there's other kinds of images too. And they're not all out there because I have images of brokenness and brutality within the church itself. Christian leaders who have failed, Christian leaders who have hurt me or hurt others that I love. And many of those images are, they're brutal. They're brutal. Okay, I'm getting dark. I'm going dark. I'm sorry. Now, I scrolled back through my mind, and weirdly, I'm going to show you the image that my mind went back to. I know this is, this is not going to make a lot of sense to you, but to me, it makes all the sense in the world. We're putting an image up here. Let me see. Do I have it? There it is. Do you know what that image is? That's the duck and cover drill. It's the Cuban Missile Crisis. It's 1962. I'm nine years old. And I'm this kid right in the front. No, I'm not really. That's just it. <laughs> but I may as well be that kid. Because in my mind, I can go back almost a half century and I can remember a moment when our country was on the brink of war. And as a kid in elementary school, we had drills where we were told to duck and cover. Get under your desk. And by the way, Turn away from the windows so that you don't see the blast. Now, I was a sharp little kid. I was nine years old. I knew what a nuclear bomb was. <laughs> and I'm thinking, are you joking? So I don't see the blast? I'm like, we are all dead. <laughs> We're dead. <laughs> that image serves as the perfect metaphor of my life as a young man. It was duck and cover from the threat of war. It was duck and cover when I went home and my parents were arguing so bad that they would break all the furniture and break the windows out of my house. It was duck and cover when my mom found a pistol but couldn't find the bullets and she was trying to kill us. It was duck and cover over and over and over again in my young, impressionable life. And so, let's fast forward to 19 years old and a bitter, broken atheist who's basically given up on the world and given up on God 
And then someone challenged me. And they said, I challenge you to read the Gospel of John. Read the Gospel of John with an open mind. I'm like, why would I do that? That's, that's stupid. I challenge you, read the Gospel of John with an open mind. And I opened to the Gospel of John, and I began to read. And I read these words in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. And I was astounded. I was astounded. The light shines in the darkness. I know darkness. I know what it is to duck and cover. And what God is doing in the Gospel of John, just like the book of Revelation, is he, he's giving me a vision. He's giving me an image that is greater than any other image in my life that controls my life and tells me who I am. Here's another image. It's not an image of the broken world. It's a vision of Jesus Christ and the gospel of Christ, the light shining into the darkness. And we know in chapter 1 and verse 14, and the word became flesh. <laughs> and I read on in the gospel of John, and my life was forever changed because it brought me to faith in Jesus Christ at age 19. Here's the application. Here's what I have found. To sustain your faith for a lifetime, and to come to faith and to sustain your faith for a lifetime of following Jesus, you must grow deep in your vision of the glory of Jesus Christ. You must root yourself and go deep in that vision. Make it a lifetime quest. But there's something else. And so we're going to go back to the book of Revelation in chapter 19. There's another image that I want you to think about, and it's the image of the multitude. Okay, so we've seen the lamb, the rider on the horse, Jesus. It's amazing. But there's another image, and that's the image of the vast multitude. And the vast multitude represents a life of commitment to the mission of Christ. Now, Revelation is, is designed to root us in faith. And part of that is our vision of Jesus. But there's something, there's another aspect. And that's what I'm calling making a commitment to join Christ in his mission to a broken world. And you might say, I have no idea where you're getting that out of the text. Let's go back to Revelation 19, verse 1. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation, glory, and power belong to our God. You say, wait, who's the great multitude? Well, we know the great multitude is those that Christ came to redeem and to save out of this broken world. That's the great multitude. It's people from every tribe, every nation, every language, every race. It's a great multitude of those redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. It's awesome. And then if we go down to verse 6, I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. There they are again, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of 
mighty peals of thunder. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. And you say, wait a minute, who's the bride? (laughs) Oh, the, the integration of the symbols and the images in the book of Revelation. The bride is the multitude, right? And then he says, blessed are those who are invited to the, the, the marriage supper. And you go, well, wait a minute, who's invited? It's the great multitude that's invited. Isn't it weird? The multitude is the bride, and the multitude are the guests. You go, well, how does that work? I don't know, it's the book of Revelation. <laughs> Everything's just... <laughs> And then you find out in chapter 21 that there's this new city coming down, the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven, and it says, adorned like a bride. And you go, wait a minute, now the great multitude is the bride is a city. How can that be? I don't know, it's the book of Revelation. It's image upon image upon image. But there's something that we're being told in this image of the great multitude. It actually has two dimensions to it. The first dimension is the great multitude, is those who have been redeemed. Their lives have been redeemed by Christ. They are the recipients of Christ's redemptive mission. And so if I'm to go to Revelation 7, 9 through 10, let's take a look at that. Uh, Here we go, 7, 9. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand and crying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So there's a great multitude. They're, They're those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. They're the recipients of redemption. But secondly, there's something more. If I'm to go back to Revelation 6, 9, he shows us the multitude again. And this time he says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and the witness that they had borne. Now all of a sudden we realize the multitude, it's the recipients of the salvation of Christ, and we find out it's also the participants in the mission of Christ, his redemptive mission in the world. How do I know that? Because they're slain for their witness, for their word of testimony. Now I'm beginning to to look at the multitude from two different angles, which is like the image of Jesus. We sort of look at multiple angles. Now I'm looking at the multitude from different angles. Back in Revelation 19, think about this. How weird is this? Um, Verse 7, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen. So the bride has been given something, given the garments, passive recipient of these garments. But then it says at the end of verse 8, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saint. He said, well, wait a minute. Was it just given? Are the garments just given? Or did the multitude do something? The righteous deeds. So now I see that this multitude has more than one Dimension, And that's why I'm saying the book of Revelation not only gives us a 
glorious vision of Jesus Christ, our Lord, but also challenges us to commit our lives to the mission of Christ in a broken world. And there is no commitment without cost. I have been moved by the faith of our brothers and sisters around the world who live on mission for Jesus. Their faith inspires my faith. Don't you think that's the book of Revelation? We're reading them and they go, wow, those, those guys were all in. Well, their faith builds my faith. That's the design of the book of Revelation. We went to a suit, Egypt, which is five hours by train south of Cairo on the Nile River. It's the birthplace of the Muslim Brotherhood, and we worshiped with Christians brother, Christian brothers and sisters in a church in which you had to go through metal detectors to get into the building. There's a 12-foot wall out in front onto which they had erected another five feet of spikes across the top. Why did they do this? Because the Muslim Brotherhood pulled a bus up in front and blew it up and tried to scale the wall with automatic weapons to attack the people in the church. This wasn't that many years ago. And when I went to the church and I went through the metal detector and I saw the wall, I felt a little uncomfortable. <laughs> I'm like, what? Are you kidding? And they're like, yeah. And then I got on a plane and I flew home. And that's where they live. And that's how they live their faith in this world. In Yangon, Myanmar, I work with a pastor, a Burmese pastor. When he emails me now, his sign-off is, in Myanmar, no risk, no ministry. I went to his house. He had a home church on the top of his house a few years ago to preach on a Sunday morning. And when I came there, he brought out a letter he said, I just received a letter from the government. The government says it's illegal to meet in house churches in Myanmar. And I said, well, what are we going to do? He said, it doesn't matter. It doesn't concern us. He said, if they come with guns, then we'll reconsider. You're preaching. <laughs> You're preaching. Okay, here's the letter. You're preaching. They may come with guns. I don't know. I don't get it. I have a photo of Yin San Win. This is a young woman in her 20s, who I prayed with as she was about to go off to Thandwe in Rakhine State. Now, Rakhine State is the state where the Rohingya are uh, basically that whole controversy, if you know anything about the Rohingya, and they, like a million, have been forced out of the country into Bangladesh. It's a war zone. And this young lady says, I'm going to go and begin a Christian boarding home for children who are in danger, and I'm going to lead them in Christ, to Christ. Will you pray for me? And I'm like, I'm not even worthy to pray for you. Prayed for her, sent her off. Yesterday, I, I did a WhatsApp to my Burmese pastor friend. I said, how's she doing? And he said, she's doing well. She drove off into a war zone for the name of Christ. And I'm inspired. I'm inspired by this. Pray for her, please. In Bujasera, Rwanda, we met a man who had survived the genocide. And at one point, his family had been murdered 
He was a Tutsi and his family had been murdered by the Hutsis and he, he had hidden in the swamps of Bujasera for three days and, and escaped the genocide. And God showed him to go to the prisons and to share Christ with the people who had killed his family. And he did. He had a prison ministry. And he, would, he goes into these prisons and he proclaims the love of Christ to the people who had murdered his own family. I'm inspired by the faith of my brothers and sisters who are committed to the mission of Christ. Here's what I've learned. Here's a lesson. You cannot sustain your faith for long without commitment to the mission of Christ. And you cannot commit to the mission without a cost. Now, these two go together. It's the vision of Jesus, and we're all like, that's so awesome, I love Jesus, and he's my savior. And, and it's like, okay, keep reading Revelation, because here's the mission of Jesus, this Jesus that you love. Here's the mission of Jesus, and the book of Revelation is designed to say, will you commit to this mission, even if it costs you something? And if we don't, then our faith begins to flag. You have to be an active follower of Christ for your faith to remain strong through a lifetime. And finally, the final point I want to make as we prepare to come to the Lord's table for communion, one last image. It is the image of the feast. It is the marriage supper of the Lamb. The design of the book of Revelation is to show us a vision of Jesus that's glorious to challenge us to a life of commitment to the mission of Christ, but also to point us to an experience. To point us to an experience with Christ that actually will define who we are in this world. It is a vision of our ultimate destiny, the marriage supper of the Lamb. How great will that feast be? Think for a minute about the best meal you've ever had. Okay, best meal you've ever had. Now, maybe it's because of the food. You know, I mean, great restaurant, great food, or somebody you know, and you just, you went, that, that was actually the best meal I've ever had. But it probably wasn't the food. It might have been the occasion. Maybe it was a wedding. And afterwards, there was a feast, and you go, wow, this is great food, but it's even better. Like, think about how great this is, this amazing event that we're having. Or most likely, it was the people. Because maybe the best meal you've ever had was just a gathering of family and friends, and it didn't matter what the food was. <laughs> and here's what's amazing about the marriage supper of the Lamb, and you get it all. You're going to get the best food. You're going to get the best event. You're going to get the best company. You're going to get the family of Christ. It's awesome. But Revelation is designed to show us how to live in the present moment by faith, not just to look to the future. What if we live in the present moment with expectation of a foretaste of the future? And now I'm reminded that in the New Testament, Jesus is constantly having a meal. Jesus is invited to the home of the Pharisee and there he's having a meal and there this woman who is 
a sinful woman comes and begins to weep and, and anoints his feet. And, and it's this beautiful, beautiful moment. It's like a foretaste of redemption. Here's Jesus, and it's the Last Supper, and he's washing the disciples' feet. And it's amazing. And it's like a foretaste of that final meal. Here's Cleopas and his friend in Luke 24. They're on the road to Emmaus. They're taken off, man. They're giving up on Jesus. They're like, he's crucified. He's dead. We thought he was a savior. They're walking out of town, and Jesus shows up and just starts walking with them, and they don't even know it. And the Bible says that it was getting late, and so they went in to, to an inn, and they had a meal together. And Jesus is at table, and he breaks bread and gives thanks, and their eyes are open, and they said, oh, it's Jesus. And then what happened? He disappeared. And they said, oh, didn't our hearts burn within us while he broke bread and opened the scriptures to us? You know what that was? A foretaste. It was a foretaste, an experiential foretaste of a future consummation. Now, this is the third way that our faith is sustained. It's by our, our experience with Jesus. I call it the mystery of Christ in our lived experience. <clears throat> I can't control it. I don't know when it's going to happen, but I keep looking for the foretaste experientially of Jesus. And maybe you've noticed, if you're really thinking this through, I've given you some categories. <clears throat> Theological, the beauty of Jesus, the reality of Jesus. Missional, the mission of Jesus. And experiential, the presence of Jesus. And I guess what I would say to you from a half century of following Christ, those three things always must go together. The theological, the truth of who Jesus is, build a biblical vision of Jesus, biblical vision of Jesus, your Lord and Savior. Missional, engage in a life of doing to bring the love and truth of Christ to others and experiential. Keep pressing into that foretaste of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let me pray with you. Lord, thank you so much for this church, Lord, and for these people that you have called to be followers of Christ. We thank you most of all for your glory, Jesus, for the reality of who you are, for the image that trumps all other images. We thank you, Lord, for your mission in the world and that we can be a part of it. And Lord, we long for a foretaste, to live with an experience of your presence in our lives. Would you do that even now? And as we come to the table, tell us who we are, Lord. Tell us who we are through the elements. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.